You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good evening. As we continue to walk by faith, if you will turn your Bible to Genesis 24, and I'm so glad you have us stand as we sing, we will stand as children of the promise. I remember at Basin Baptist Church growing up, we would sing standing on the promises while remaining seated. <laughs> I always found that confusing. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to continue uh, to bless this portion of our worship service. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace to us. Thank you that we do have a promise, a promise that has been secured uh, through a righteous and obedient life, a substitutionary propitiatory death, a resurrection from the grave, and an ascension to your right hand in the gift of the Holy Spirit all by the person of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. And Lord, may we behold Him tonight, even in our text in Genesis 24. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So this is the longest chapter, as I said this morning, in the book of Genesis. And it's the longest single recorded episode except for the the flood narrative, which takes us over three chapters, and I think 75 verses. Well, tonight's chapter is not that long. It's 67 verses, but we're only going to be looking at the first 27 this evening. Um, But this passage, this chapter, to me, is one of the great chapters on the doctrine of providence, divine providence. Now, providence, that word is not found in your Bible. That's why uh, there is a word study fallacy by just focusing on the explicit terms in the Bible. The word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But certainly the, the truth of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, is faithfully expounded in the Scriptures, and so is the, the term providence. Now, where do we get that word? The English word, interestingly enough, comes from... Genesis 22, where Abraham tells Isaac in response to the question, Father, where's the lamb? The Lord will provide himself the lamb. And in the Latin Vulgate, Jerome's edition, translation of the the Old Testament scriptures, he translated that, Deus, the word for God, providibit. the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And that word in Latin means to provide for or to foresee. And so we came to use that term from the Latin for the word providence, providibit, providence, which refers to the fact that the Lord will provide for all aspects of his created order to bring about his sovereign and wise purposes for the created order. And so we have seen that throughout the book of Genesis, but we see it especially here in Genesis 24. Now, we could say everything happens by divine providence, everything. 
The fact that you're here tonight is it's divine providence. But we all recognize unique expressions of providence in our lives. For example, you've heard me share this, but the day we buried my grandmother, the grandmother who when we, every time we were together, we would get on our knees and she would pray two things every time. There were other things she prayed for. There were two things she always prayed for. She prayed for ministry direction and she prayed for me a wife. And you've heard this story, but uh, the day of her funeral, I'm standing over the casket of Miss Kim, Miss Kim Jackson, tapped me on the shoulder and she asked me, I'd, I'd heard a conversation or I had heard from my grandmother about the conversation they'd had a few weeks earlier. And I said no, and she began to tell me about the, the program here, the intern program. And the rest is history, okay? That was providence, God answering my grandmother's prayer even over her casket. Three days later, I'm teaching a Bible study in Nashville and Franklin, and my future wife, Heather, my first wife, Walked into the study and I met my wife. So within three days of burying my grandmother, the two things that she always prayed for were they came to pass. And if you believe that's an exaggeration, ask Miss see Miss Kim after the service. That's exactly what happened. Um, but we see one of these unique expressions of providence here in chapter 24. Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to see boy meet girl tonight. We're going to see that next week, okay, where Isaac meets and marries Rebecca. But we're going to see God working remarkably. And by the way, he's the same God that you worship to bring this to pass. In fact, the last verse of this chapter, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I'm turning into Jimmy Swagger. <laughs> After my grandmother died and I met Heather, my pastor wrote this verse on a card to me. And thus, Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. But unlike my situation with Heather, Isaac's marriage was for the hope of the world. It was unique. That is, Isaac needed a wife, but not just so he could be married. He is the son of promise. He needed a wife as, so as the descendants could be as numerous, Genesis 22, as the stars in the sky, so that his descendants, his seed, could bless the nations. That's what makes this chapter so important. Well, that brings us to the first part of this chapter. Interestingly enough, these are Abraham's last recorded words. And in these words, we see his faith in the promise. Just as we are children of the promise, he was a child of the promise as well. Look with me in verse 1. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, 
put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So here in chapter 24, we see Abraham walking in faith for the last time. Chapter 25, he's going to die. But he's concerned about his son, but he's also concerned about the covenant. Okay? So when we read these passages, we can't just individualize them. There's a grand narrative, okay, that's taking place from Genesis 3.15 to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's concerned, yes, about his son getting married, having babies, but he's also concerned about the covenant. Now, what he does here, put your hand under my thigh. Um, if you read 10 scholars on this, they're going to give you 10 views. It's hard to understand all that this vow is, except one thing is clear. This oath is invoking, bringing to bear the, the power and the promises of God who gave the covenant. Now, keep in mind in the ancient Near East, and I think it's broken the way we do it in the West, but in the ancient Near East, generally it was parents and, and fathers for that matter uh, who were deeply involved in in connecting children for marriage, okay? So that's, that's what's going on here. Um, and, and so in the ancient Near East, marriages were generally just worked out by the parents. There would have been less divorce as a result of that. Of course, a first importance, Abraham demanded that Isaac's wife not come from the Canaanites. Now, this is not forbidding interracial marriage. The issue here is not interracial, it's, in, it's interfaith, okay? The Canaanites worshiped false gods. That is the concern here in this passage. Remember Noah's oracle, cursed be Canaan. And that was being lived out by the present Canaanites where he was residing. And so there could be no mixing of Abraham's line that worshiped Yahweh with the Canaanites who worshiped the false gods. And so this was not interracial that he was concerned about. In fact, interfaith marriage is one of the quickest ways that you see in the Old Testament, the quickest routes to covenant breaking. Numbers 25, Ezra chapter 9, if you want to look at that sometime. Well, verse 5, the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. And so the idea here is that Isaac's presence in the land, 
all right, was a declaration incarnate that this land belonged to Abraham and his offspring. Significantly, Isaac is never allowed to leave the land, even when there's a famine that comes later in Genesis. Notably, what stands out here in Abraham's last recorded words, these are his last recorded words, is his faith. Now, why is that important? Because his first recorded words in Genesis, Genesis 15, were words of doubt. So we've seen sanctification through the trials and the struggles and the disciplining hand of God. In Genesis 15, he said, you have given me no offspring. But here, look with me in the second part of verse 7. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So he believed that God's unseen hand would do it all. Amen? Owe to trust in his wisdom and his goodness and his providence. God's hand may be hidden, but his power is absolute. Now, where is he learning this kind of faith? Well, we've seen his exercise throughout the, the Abrahamic narrative, but most recently in Genesis 22, when he lays his son up on the altar and God provides a ram in the thicket in the place of his son. You see, when God takes us through tests and we see his hand provide through those tests, he's equipping us, he's arming us, for future test. And so here we see this with Abraham. And so what Abraham is saying here, and this is so important for us, God is going to provide a wife for Isaac because he knows Isaac is the son of promise and Isaac's got to have children. He's not going to do that without a wife. And so God is going to provide a wife and he doesn't and if he doesn't do so by the means that Abraham thinks he will do, leave it up to him to fulfill the promise in his own way. Trust him. You don't have to compromise, in other words. You don't have to settle. That's an important word for all singles. You do not have to settle. Trust him. He is Yahweh Jireh the Lord who will provide. Cornelius Vanderwall in his book on Genesis says this, Abraham must have been sorely tempted to establish a close relationship with one of the local families by marrying Isaac to one of their daughters. By virtue of such a marriage, Abraham and Isaac would no longer be regarded as foreigners in the land of Canaan. And yet such a marriage would have involved a canonizing of the seed of promise. You see that? And Abraham would have none of that. Now there are two favorite topics that a lot of single people, not every single person, but a lot of single Christians love to focus on. Relationships and God's direction. All right?
we can learn a whole lot right here. The truth is, all you really need to know about God's guidance with regard to his secret will can be summed up, really, right here in this passage. God is faithful, obey his revealed will. It's that simple. Whether or not it seems likely to work is not your business. That is beyond your pay grade. He is faithful, do it his way. Obey his revealed will. Being faithful to his revealed will, becoming an expert in his revealed will is your business. That's it. We learned that right here. There's not going to be any miracles in this story. There's not going to be a parting of the waters. No axe heads are going to float. The sun's not going to stand still. None of that's going to happen. Rather, God is going to bring about Isaac's bride through the normal events of life. Delays, customs, chance meetings, all the above. J.I. Packer says this, believers are never in the grip of blind forces. Fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned. And each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice. In other words, you cannot out-obey the provision of God. You will not get out of his will by obeying him. So we've seen Abraham's faith in his last recorded words, but he's not the only one with faith in the promise. That brings us to the servant. So we've seen Abraham's words, which demonstrate faith in the promise. The rest of this section, verses 9 to 27, the servant's prayer, which demonstrates faith in the promise. So the servant, verse 9, put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Naor. Now, this was a, a thousand mile journey. To put that in perspective, New York City is a 1,000 mile journey. And so, that's a long trip. And he did it with camels, all right? So it's, not, it's hard to envision how long this would have taken, and just say they traveled 20 miles a day. Um, you know, Robert Williams did an MBA. He could figure out what that is. But several days, all right, a couple of months. It would have been a long, hard trip. But his first act was an act of desperate, devotional, doxological dependence. Verse 11. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at the time of evening, at the time of evening, the time when women go out 
to draw water. All right? And he said, oh, Lord. Notice the first thing he does is pray. Oh, Lord, God of my master Abraham, please. This is a great prayer. This is a great prayer to begin every day and begin every week. Grant me success today. And show steadfast love, hesed, to my master, Abraham. Now, Genesis is the book of first. And this is the first person in the Bible to pray for guidance. All right? We saw Abraham make intercession over Sodom and Gomorrah. That was a prayer. But this is the first prayer in the Bible for guidance. Where do you think, though, this servant learned how to pray? Clearly, I mean, he's talking about the God of his, his master, Abraham. He learned to pray from Abraham. I love what Charles Hadgen Spurgeon says about the impact of one godly person in a, in a family. Through grace, or though grace does not run in the blood. All right, what he's saying there is that you, you're not born into this world saved. Though grace does not run in the blood and regeneration is not of blood nor of birth, yet it doth very frequently. I was about to say almost always happen that God, by means of one of a household, draws the rest to himself. He calls an individual, then he uses him to be sort of a spiritual decoy to bring the rest of the family into the gospel net. I thought about that quote as I thought about the clear impact that Abraham had had on this servant. But importantly here, in keeping with the emphasis on this text and its, and its, its emphasis on providence, the servant doesn't ask for a miracle. It's not that God doesn't work miracles, but he doesn't ask for a miracle. Rather, he's just seeking guidance in the regular way, in the ordinary events of life. All right? Another commentator, Nahum Sarna, commentator on Genesis, says this, nothing is more characteristic of biblical man than a profound and persuasive or pervasive conviction about the role of divine providence in everyday affairs. And what this servant is asking for and is praying for was something that would identify the character of this woman. Look with me in verse 13. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown Hesed, steadfast love, to my master. 
Only the living God can affect such providence. And he shows this servant his dependency on God and his providence by his prayer. That's how you know you're trusting God, is the fervency of your prayer life. This man was a living example of the favorite passage my grandmother held on to. And it's a favorite passage of many of you, I'm sure, as well. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. That is a promise. This man is trusting in that. But note, let her be the one whom you have appointed. He knows that God has one, one in mind. God is sovereign, so he knows God already has someone picked out. By the way, if you're choosing a spouse, let God be the one to choose for you. We don't have the wisdom of the wherewithal to do the choosing. It won't end up well. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, it doesn't always work that way. I have several anecdotes, personal anecdotes where it does. And I've heard other anecdotes where it has happened this way. It normally doesn't happen this way. Normally God wants you to persist in prayer. It's a way of building your faith and preparing you for the answer. But here, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Naor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance. He didn't even pray that, but God is able to do abundantly more than you ask or imagine, right? A maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And so God answers the servant's prayer even before he finishes praying. Now we saw earlier, all the way back in chapter 22, verse 20, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Naor, Chesed and Hazo and Pildash and Jidlaf and Bethuel. And we saw this little throw in line, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. And so it isn't surprising that Abraham had sent his servant there. God's provident, but we also have responsibility. The old Persian proverb, trust God, but tie up your camels. So they have tied up their camels. What's really remarkable here is that Rebekah volunteered silencing, not knowing who this servant is. She's not a respecter of persons here to water his 10 camels. She had no clue of the remarkable significance of her actions. Another very important point for our singles, God often meets us in the mundane grind of life and he interrupts our lives as we're just simply, to, simply obeying him in the daily responsibilities of life.
I'm reminded of David who simply took food to his brothers and God intervened and providence took over and history was changed as he, as he took on Goliath. He wasn't looking for that. God interrupted his life as he just simply obeyed his father in the mundane of life. If you're not being faithful in the mundane of life, why would God entrust more to you? He is faithful to those who are faithful with what he's already entrusted. She's just being faithful. And in that mundane act, history is changed. Verse 17, then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink my Lord. She quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and she drew for all his camels. Now to understand how amazing this is, understand that the ancient well was just basically this deep, dark hole with steps leading down to spring water. And so each drawing of the water in each bucket, they said held about three gallons, would have taken a whole lot of effort. Plus a camel, I, did, I learned this as I was studying for this passage, can drink 20 to 25 gallons of water at one time. So with a water jar or a bucket holding about three gallons, uh, this means that she made very likely about 80 to 100 descents into the well. And finally, I learned this about camels. You're gonna learn something about camels tonight. It takes a camel about 10 minutes to drink. So this would have been about an hour and a half process for Rebecca. She's serving a man she doesn't even know. He's observing her character in her faithfulness. Now this again is a very important principle. It applies to guys and gals, but in this particular context, it's most specifically related to the girls. Christian girls, Christian ladies, who seek the attention of godly, prospective, prospective husbands and men would do well to follow Rebecca's example here. Rather than the shallow, sensual approach that we most often see in our culture. If you use shallow sensuality to attract a man, let me just tell you right now, you're going to attract someone who's addicted to pornography and he will be hell for you in your marriage. Just be God's woman, God's woman in the mundane, just serving him for his glory and he will interrupt your life with his best for you. 
And the servant here is amazed at God's remarkable and quick act of providence. Verse 21, as we come to the end of this section. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a, a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Naor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. I love that. And said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. So when he first arrived at the well, what did he do? He prayed. And here, at the close of this meeting with Rebecca, he prays. This man is a man of faith as evidenced by his dependence on the Lord. The doctrine of providence is that God has total hands-on control of all things. We saw that this morning, even of the cross. The most heinous and wicked act in the history of humanity. And God was sovereign over the cross. We'll see it later when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And Joseph tells his brothers, you did not send me to Egypt. God sent me here. God is sovereign in all things. But his providence here does not minimize human responsibility. This man is praying. He knows God's at work. We don't have to see all that God is doing to know that he's at work. Yet trusting in God's providence does not minimize human responsibility. For one, this man traveled a thousand miles. And on top of that, the man just cannot stop praying. On one last note as we close here, I think it's telling that the servant's name is never given. If you'll remember back in Genesis 15, Abraham had another servant in his house whose name was Eliezer of Damascus. But here, the servant is not given. It may be Eliezer. I don't know. It's impossible to know. But it's not given. Now, what's the point I'm making? Could it be that this narrative is also a type pointing us beyond itself to something even greater? We have hope ultimately in God's providence, his good providence, because a greater father sent a greater messenger, the Holy Spirit, to secure a bride for a greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think about 
the, the symmetry here and, and the, just the similarity. Isaac was a promised son. Jesus was a promised son. Isaac was conceived miraculously, not by virgin conception, but in old age. Jesus was conceived miraculously. Isaac was offered up by his father and was obedient unto death. In fact, as we'll see next week, when his bride comes out to meet him, he's already been offered up as a sacrifice and metaphorically speaking, brought back to life. And the servant is wooing this, this bride, this potential, this future bride by informing her of the riches and the glory of the bridegroom. I certainly believe that this is a type pointing us beyond itself. And here's my point. If God through his providence has sent the greater messenger to woo us and draw us into the greater bridegroom at the expense of the bridegroom through his cross, his resurrection, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how much more will he in him freely give us all things? He's taken care of our greatest need by securing us as the bride to the bridegroom. Every other need pales in comparison. That's a word from Genesis 24. Trust God's good and wise providence and then obey his revealed will. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we wanna start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.